Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you an hour of news, history, commentary, and information about the African American community. Today I have readings from Parade Magazine and the New York Times. I'm going to wrap up with a book review from Kirkus Reviews Magazine, and I'm going to start with three stories from the January-February 2024 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. The first is titled, Tracing a Lost Ancestry. It was written by Tracy Scott Forson. The subtitle to the article is, For millions of enslaved people, bondage stole more than freedom. It severed a link to the past. Now their descendants are finding new ways to recover their heritage. The names were neatly printed in the back of a family Bible. A large edition with decorative gold-rimmed pages and a white leather cover. I stumbled upon this record of my ancestors as a teenager. Each name was perfectly legible. A testament to the special care somebody had taken in writing each one. There were more than 80 names in total. The record included only a few generations. My paternal great-grandfather was Moses Scott. His wife was Sarah Ella Douglas. My father's maternal grandfather was William Loper. My maternal great-grandfather was Alexander Barr. He also married a Sarah. Her maiden name was Cooper. But the space that would have identified my mother's maternal grandparents was empty. What were their names? For those interested in tracing their ancestry, it's not uncommon to encounter sudden gaps in information. That's especially true for African Americans descended from the enslaved, whose link to their ancestral past was so violently shattered. The quest to recover that lost heritage is at the heart of the stories that follow. Travelers in possession of DNA tests describing their genetic history embark on personalized trips to their ancestral homelands in Africa. A photographer restages old portraits of black heroes of the Civil War, some unknown to the public and even to their descendants until now. Forensic anthropologists use advanced isotope analysis to examine the remains of the first generation of enslaved people and create uniquely precise maps of their places of origin. My own quest brought me to the Robert Frederick Smith Explore Your Family History Center at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, NMAAHC. The center draws on census records, marriage licenses, divorce decrees, wills, military records, lists known as slave schedules, and other sources to assist anyone interested in exploring their roots. We started with my mother, locating her and her mom on a 1950 census. As we accessed earlier data, new names appeared. I learned that my mother's maternal grandmother was Nancy Sharperson. We traced the family line back to the 1870 census, the first conducted after the Civil War, where we found names I'd never heard, Henry and Susan Stark. Both were born in South Carolina. That's where the record stopped. Genealogists refer to this as hitting the brick wall. This occurs because enslaved African Americans prior to the 1870 census mainly appear on the slave schedules of 1860 and 1850. Often without names, Lisa Crawley, a genealogy reference assistant at NMAAHC, told me. Searching old records, Crawley found a prominent South Carolina landowning family named Stark. We weren't able to identify Henry as property of any Stark inventories, which only listed enslaved people by their gender and age. 
But we learn that Robert Stark, an attorney who died in 1830, bequeathed the people he enslaved to his children in a will. We believe that one of those enslaved people may have been Henry's mother. There's likely no record of those who came before. My ancestors who survived the Middle Passage are who toiled for decades before they were deemed human enough to have their names listed. Their identities are seemingly lost forever. I received my own gold-embossed, leather-bound Bible as a gift when I married almost seven years ago. It includes eight pages where I can create a family tree. I hope I have as steady a hand in penmanship as neat when I enter the names of the Bars, Coopers, Sharpersons, Scotts, Douglases, Lopers, and, of course, the Starks, my great-great-grandparents in the registry. That was the article titled, Tracing a Lost Ancestry. It was written by Tracy Scott Forson and published in the Smithsonian Magazine in its January-February 2024 edition. Next on today's program, I have an article from the January-February 2024 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. The title is, Origin Stories. In Charleston, South Carolina, members of the local black community are teaming up with scientists to produce a novel study of the transatlantic slave trade. It was written by Maddie Bender and Teddy Brokaw. While digging a trench for the renovation of a local performing arts center in 2013, construction workers in Charleston, South Carolina made a startling discovery, human bones. The crew called the police and coroner's office unaware they had stumbled upon a late 18th century burial ground. The site's location, along with the coins, ceramics, and beads that had been buried with the bodies, suggested that the people had been enslaved Africans. For years after the initial discovery, scientists and community leaders worked to identify the people who had occupied the graves. The city enlisted Ade Opunian, capital O-F-U-N-N-I-Y-I-N, known as Dr. O, to helm these efforts. A cultural anthropologist, nonprofit director, and grandson of a famed Charleston blacksmith, Ophunian ensured that the 36 individuals who had come to be known as the Ancestors had a modern-day champion. He sought to learn the Ancestors' histories and honor their identities. He successfully lobbied the city to reinter the Ancestors. And in response to a high school student's question, did the Ancestors have names? Ophunian presided over a traditional Yoruba naming ceremony in 2019. After Ophunian died unexpectedly in 2020, a group called the Anson Street African Burial Ground Project took up the mantle. He put together a beautiful team of people, said Lashila Obrey, the group's community education lead. He left us to continue the work. That work included seeking permission from Charleston's African-American community to extract DNA samples from the remains of the ancestors. With the community's consent, the samples were analyzed and the results shed some light on where the ancestors had originated. Many hailed from West Central Africa, West Africa, or Sub-Saharan Africa. One ancestor was found to have mixed West African and Native American heritage. But DNA can only tell you so much. I was just getting so sick of the interpretation being, we have an African individual and our interpretation is that this person is from sub-Saharan Africa, says Vicky Olze, an anthropologist at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who studies the archaeology of the transatlantic slave trade. 
Being able to pinpoint where exactly a person is from, she says, has implications for their culture, their language, their beliefs, their practices, which contributed to so much of the culture of the Americas and the African diaspora at large. To trace those origins with more precision, Jose uses a tool called isotope mapping. Just as geographic regions vary in types of rocks and trees, they also have different proportions of elements. Jose and her team focused on the isotopes strontium-86 and 87, which show up in the ancient bedrock of Angola. A quick refresher from chemistry class. Isotopes are variations of an element that have the same number of protons. In the case of strontium, that's 38, but different numbers of neutrons. The researchers created a map, or isoscape, of Angola showing where different concentrations of the strontium isotopes were found in the Earth. Instead of sampling rocks, Jose and her team analyzed the strontium in modern plants to get a sense of how the isotopes show up in living things. People growing up in Angola in the 18th century would have absorbed the area's strontium isotopes in their bodies. The researchers looked at strontium isotope concentrations in teeth recovered from the Charleston burial ground, as well as other African burial grounds in Rio de Janeiro, Campeche, Mexico, and Phillipsburg, San Martin. In a study published in June 2023, they reported that a handful of candidates from each site could have spent their formative years in Angola, and the researchers pinpointed the specific regions where they would have likely originated. Jose's ambitions didn't end there. Her goal is to create maps using a variety of isotopes. For instance, levels of oxygen isotopes can tell scientists whether a person lived in a warm, dry region or a moist tropical one. Sulfur isotopes can indicate a person's proximity to the ocean. Isotopes of carbon and nitrogen, meanwhile, differ according to diet and can be particularly helpful in West Central Africa where different cultures ate different staple crops. Future isoscapes will reveal increasingly specific details of an enslaved person's early life. Over time, these findings will help form a more complete picture of the entire transatlantic slave trade. Historians have long debated how deeply the trade penetrated into the interior of the continent. Soon, researchers will be able to pair isotope data with other information like shipping records to trace a person's likely path from the African interior to an Atlantic port and then to destinations throughout the Americas. All of that will add up to a remarkably precise and personal view of who enslaved individuals were. Meanwhile, the Anson Street African Burial Ground Project continues to work toward Ophanian's vision. At the site where the ancestors were reinterred, an artist will create bronze cast of the hands of 36 Charleston residents who roughly match the ancestors' heritage, sexes, and ages at death. The hands will sit atop a fountain whose basin incorporates soil from the nearby African-American burial grounds. Those that are forgotten, those that nobody knows about, those that no one can even find, this monument is going to be a symbol of everybody being in one place, Obrey says. With this data and information that's now accessible, it's like you're dreaming a true dream. That was the article, Origin Stories. In South Carolina, members of the local black community are teaming up with scientists to produce a novel study of the transatlantic slave trade. It was written by Maddie Bender and Teddy Brokaw and published in the January-February 2024 edition 
of Smithsonian Magazine. My next and last story from the January-February 2024 edition of Smithsonian Magazine is titled Homecoming. Ada Anago Brown connects African Americans with lands and cultures their forebears were forced to leave behind. It was written by Rosalind Cummings Yeats. One hot day in November 2017, Hassani Carter, a genealogist and middle school science teacher from Columbus, Ohio, walked the dusty path to the confluence of the Azu and Ambala rivers just outside Aguleri, a village in southeastern Nigeria. The sun pounded down on his head as he neared the placid waves. Surrounded by dozens of members of the village, he and others he was traveling with were guided into the shallow water where Eze, King Chukwumeka Eri, the traditional ruler of the Aguleri, slowly poured water over their heads. He baptized us and reinstated us into the community as Igbo, an ethnic group Carter recalled recently. He absolved the hardships of the transatlantic slave trade. The Eze took us to a shrine afterward. It was a white building with a thatched roof. We bowed and he gave us our Nigerian names. Prince Chiname Eri is my name. It means God's gift. It was the most amazing experience of my life. Carter, 40, had traveled to Africa with Roots to Glory, a Maryland-based company that helps black people, particularly descendants of those enslaved in the United States, connect with their ancestral lands and people. Since the company was founded a decade ago, it has hosted hundreds of travelers on custom-designed pilgrimages to countries all over West and Central Africa. Many describe the experience as a homecoming celebration, a cultural exploration, and a spiritual awakening all at once. The very first village that I went to was the village where my ancestors walked, Carter said. I was more myself there than I am in Ohio. I didn't have to think about my blackness. I felt freer, fully free. Rooster Glory is one of a number of heritage travel companies benefiting from the widespread popularity of at-home DNA testing through outfits like Ancestry and 23andMe. Because it is especially difficult for descendants of enslaved Africans to trace their family histories, African Americans have reaped particular benefits from these services, adding to an already robust online ecosystem devoted to African American genealogy that has traditionally made use of recorded family stories, oral histories, census data, and other official documents. One group, Our Black Ancestry, a nonprofit organization, has a database of more than 12 million people abducted from Africa, including more than half a million who were enslaved in the United States. Afrogenius, which focuses on African-American genealogy, has a Facebook community of 17,000 members. I started Roots to Glory because I knew there would be people who would want to know where they came from after taking DNA tests, said Ada Anago Brown, who founded the company in 2012. Brown, a five-foot-tall charismatic ball of energy who was now in her late 50s, was well-positioned to help people connect with their African heritage. She grew up in Cameroon, the daughter of the chief of the Ingwo village, and she has a deep love for her Central African heritage and culture. She fondly remembers walking for miles through her village and greeting every person she encountered. She recalls rituals in which adult masqueraders in traditional costumes of straw and masks chased her and her friends around. She snacked on grilled grasshoppers, but her favorite food was her mother's eru, a hearty soup made from green vegetable leaves, meat and palm oil, 
which is now considered one of Cameroon's national dishes. In 1975, when Brown was 10, her father, who was also a colonel in Cameroon's military, received a diplomatic posting in Washington, D.C., and the family relocated to a Maryland suburb. Her first years in the States, where she was enrolled at an international school, was welcoming. There were lots of Africans and people from other countries, she said. It was a true melting pot. But at the local public school, there was less diversity and open racial hostility. White schoolmates called her racist names, the N-word, a token. She was even more mystified by what she felt was a cold shoulder from some black people. They'd say Africans lived in trees so that I talked different and that I thought I was better than them, Brown said. She remembers trying to hide her accent to avoid ridicule. She couldn't understand how African-Americans she encountered didn't feel a bond over their shared history. But when she pointed out this bond, she was rejected. It saddened me that people have negative views of Africa. Their ancestors were removed from Africa. We were the family they left behind. At the same time, some African-Americans report being referred to as white by the locals when they visit African countries, emphasizing the cultural disconnect. I'm a unicorn, Brown said. I straddled two continents. It was important to connect the two. After culinary college, Brown settled in Baltimore, married and had children. For years, she organized cultural events like African dance performances in the Baltimore, Washington area. And when her kids grew older, she volunteered for a small nonprofit that worked with African ambassadors to help Americans who wanted to trace their African heritage. In 2010, Brown, who by then had gained a reputation as an expert in African cultural affairs through her work with the nonprofit and her community events, was approached by a group of African-American friends of hers who had taken at-home DNA tests and discovered their Cameroonian ancestry. Eager to learn more about their origins, they asked Brown to escort them on a trip to the country in an effort that ballooned to the size of 54 people and eventually involved several local nonprofits. As it happened, Brown was already toying with the idea of starting a DNA testing company, and she had established relationships with village elders in Cameroon, Ghana, Ivory Coast, Benin, and other countries. Brown traveled back to Cameroon on her own and brought DNA testing kits with her. She asked members of the Bamoon ethnic group, whose DNA frequently appears in African-American genealogy research, to provide samples that she later had tested through Ancestry. She found matches. The following year, when a group of Americans made the trip, they connected with long-lost cousins. Many developed lasting bonds with these distant relatives. I witnessed how profound it was for these participants to walk on ancestral land, Brown recalls. One woman took a photo of her grandmother and placed it on the Cameroonian shoreline and said, Now there will be no more shame. The joy you get from knowing where you came from is so important. It was so fulfilling to see. I knew I had to make it into a business. Soon, Brown was guiding small groups of African Americans to ancestral homelands all over West and Central Africa, including Cameroon, Nigeria, Benin, Sierra Leone, and Senegal. The majority of the enslaved Africans and their descendants in the United States have roots that lead back to these regions, according to DNA analysis. At first, she was organizing one trip a year. By the time the coronavirus pandemic halted international travel in 2020, she was leading about four trips a year. She is now organizing trips about twice a year. 
For many people who travel with Roots to Glory, these journeys represent the culmination of years of research, the final piece of the puzzle after having actually located African relatives. I didn't go to Nigeria as a tourist, said Carter, who met several distant cousins during his trip. I went as someone who had family there. I literally went home. Brown's approach to organizing trips is extremely personalized. I don't plan a tour until I know who's in the group, she said. An itinerary might include visits to specific ancestral villages, naming ceremonies, and tours of historic sites associated with the slave trade. For instance, the notorious slave castles where Europeans traded in people along the coast. Visits to restaurants, marketplaces, and museums help participants understand daily life and local history. Many clients find particular solace in paying homage to their ancestors at the sites related to their enslavement. Denise Barnes, a newspaper publisher in Washington, D.C., has traveled with Roots to Glory several times, including trips to Ghana, Cameroon, and Benin. We walk the paths where Africans walked during the slave trade, she told me. You feel their spirits, their presence. We took off our shoes in reference to them. We saw the remnants of buildings where they imprisoned the enslaved. It's empowering because you realize you're the descendant of a person who made it. They were captured, shipped across the water, had children, and here I am. It makes you say, who has the nerve to complain about anything based on what my ancestors survived? It was a heart-opening experience. While some historic sites are included, Roots to Glory trips are not designed for people with general tourist sensibilities. Groups frequently visit orphanages and schools to bring supplies and speak with children and educators about their lives. They also spend extended time inside the homes of local people or relatives, often staying the night. When you're able to go into somebody's home and they welcome you and talk about their lives, that's insight that you wouldn't normally get on tourist trips, Barnes said. That's what is so valuable. You get to know the people of the country, not just the country. Recently, Roots to Glory has partnered with the William Lockridge Community Foundation, a Washington-area nonprofit to send black children and teenagers to Africa on trips of cultural exchange. Children can't be what they can't see, said Wanda Lockridge, who named the philanthropic foundation after her late husband, a prominent educator, activist, and public official in Washington. I want to help kids who don't have the opportunity to travel to see where their ancestors came from. She went on, kids can learn so much outside the classroom. Our middle schoolers realized that they had privileges that not everybody has. They met students that couldn't go to school because of money. They saw young children carrying water for their families and helping their mothers sell at the market. One student admitted that she didn't even do her chores at home, but now she realized how many privileges she had and decided to help her mother more. Over the years, as Brown returned again and again to Africa with her clients, sharing dozens of meals in the homes of local villagers, she came to feel that food was at the heart of the bond between Africans and African Americans. So, in 2020, she co-founded the Muloma Heritage Center, a nonprofit organization in St. Helena, South Carolina, dedicated to celebrating African influences in American culture, in particular African-American cuisine. I decided that my legacy would be to help people understand the contributions that Africans have made in the United States, she said. The timing was not a coincidence. When the pandemic started, 
Brown feared she might not get to return to Africa with her groups, and she worried especially that a generation of young people might never get a chance to visit the continent. But the idea for the center had actually been planted years earlier when Cornelia Bailey, an unofficial historian of the Gullah Geechee, an ethnic group with roots in the South, approached Brown about a new initiative. At the time, the Gullah, who are descended from enslaved people abducted from the rice fields of Sierra Leone and other West African countries specifically for their agricultural expertise, were facing down developers who were buying large portions of their low country ancestral lands in South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia's coastal plains and sea islands. Bailey asked Brown if she could help organize a group, most of whom were black chefs, to purchase and protect the land. Because the area's isolated, swampy, malaria-prone conditions had made it uncomfortable for enslavers to live there consistently, Gullah people were able to retain their indigenous African language, traditions, and culture with little interference. The land, the customs, the people, it's the closest you can get to Africa in the U.S., Brown said. After an organizing drive that included a $1.8 million grant from the Mellon Foundation, the group was able to buy 38 acres of historic Gullah land. We started planning, and at first we wanted a farm, then a museum, then a cultural center, Brown recalled. The Maloma Heritage Center, the word from the Mindy language spoken in Sierra Leone means we are together, will encompass all of those things and more. The center will have a working farm that is on track to be up and running by summer 2024 growing rice, peppers, tomatoes, and other traditional crops. It will also act as a cultural storehouse with archives of heirloom seeds, cookbooks, and recipes, and will host culinary workshops and demonstrations, tracing foodways all over the African diaspora. Mindy women are legendary cooks, Brown said. They can take grass, put it in a pot with a little salt, and it will taste good. In the spring, Construction will begin on a series of structures that will showcase how culinary traditions evolved, from traditional African houses to southern farmhouses. It's not just cooking, said Brown, it's culture. In March, I joined Brown in a group that included about a dozen prominent African-American chefs on a trip to Cameroon to learn about African culinary techniques. Brown chose to visit Cameroon because its diverse landscapes make it a varied resource for plants, land animals, and seafood. The country is so ethnically diverse that it's sometimes nicknamed Africa in miniature, and by some measures, it has the richest culinary traditions on the continent. When we arrived in Douala, a coastal city with a population of close to three million, on a sticky evening, the thick air was perfumed with the sweet scent of puff puff, or small donuts, fried in oil and served with beans as a popular street food. The city hummed with traffic. Local minibuses decked out in vibrant colors and crammed with passengers careened down jacket roads. Hawkers with everything, including beverages, fried snacks, and sandals piled neatly atop their heads, wound their way through cars and crowds. It could have been an overwhelming experience, except that Brown was there to explain, translate, and guide. Among our group was Michael Twitty a culinary historian and award-winning author of books such as The Cooking Gene and Rice, a Savor the South cookbook. Mashama Bailey, James Beard award-winning chef at the Gray Restaurant in Savannah, Georgia. David K. Thomas, 
a grand champion on the reality show Chopped, Kenyatta Ashford of Neutral Ground in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and B.J. Dennis of Low Country Fresh Market and Cafe in Bluffton, South Carolina. As we travel through several villages and towns, Brown encouraged the chefs to engage with the people in local culture. Open your mind and meet people where they are, not where you expect them to be, she told them. Africans struggle, but they aren't poor. They have hope and hustle. In Douala, we dined on an expansive buffet of dishes representing culinary traditions from the east, central, and western parts of the country. There was crawfish cooked with spinach, savory soups oozing with red palm oil, and mounds of rice sprinkled with onions and shrimp. A live band playing jazz and West African hits serenaded us as we stuffed ourselves well into the night. On the road to Fomban, a Bamoon village, a herd of cattle moved alongside our bus, weaving between motorbikes and cars. We walked through a vast courtyard to the palace of the king of Bamoon, a quick-witted 30-year-old who was educated in New York and recently installed as the village's monarch. We were granted an audience with the king, who told us about his life. Then a band of musicians and dancers performed in a circle outside the palace. In the beachside town of Kribi, the chefs learned how to make pepper soup over an open fire. We sat around the flames, the waves splashing in the distance, slurping up the powerful soup from bowls made of calabashes. Later, at a fish and spice market in town, Brown pointed to traditional ingredients used in popular dishes like sangha, a stew of maize, palm nut juice, and cassava leaf, and njama njama, huckleberry leaves used to roast corn. She grabbed a handful of round seed-like plants called country onions and instructed the chefs to smell the herbal seasoning. The chefs learned about traditional preparations and spices as well as alternative ways to use them back home. As everyone was buying bottles of white peppercorns, a few locals walked up and smiled. You are very welcome, said a man wearing a New York Yankees baseball cap in halting English. We are happy you have come back. Two women in the group became teary-eyed at the recognition. It was the sort of acknowledgement for which many black Americans long. Twitty described the experience as rediscovering an essential part of himself that he didn't even know he was missing. Black Americans should visit Africa so that they can connect with that part of us that the West has no language for, he said. To visit Africa is to reunite with a deep part of your soul. For some of Brown's clients, Rediscovering that connection transforms them so completely that they decide to repatriate to countries in Africa. Some have been given land as a gift by local chiefs or villages to which they trace their heritage. Others have purchased land collectively. One group of about 20 people, whom Brown is helping prepare for a move, owns 50 acres of land near the coast in Ghana, where they are currently building new homes. As for Brown, home remains with her family in Baltimore but it's also across the vast Atlantic. Home is 54 countries. Our continent is my special place. That was the article, Homecoming. Ada Anago-Brown connects African-Americans with lands and cultures their forebearers were forced to leave behind. It was written by Rosalind Cummings Yeats. It appeared in the January-February 2024 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. This program is scheduled to air in February, which is Black History Month. My next story is a review of all of the official 
black slash Negro slash Afro-American history observations that have taken place since the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History started doing so in the 1920s. And the title is Black History Month Through the Years. Every Black History Month theme since 1928. I found this at Parade Magazine's Parade.com website. It was written by Kelsey Pelzer and published December 13, 2023. February is Black History Month and there are plenty of opportunities to celebrate. From books you can read to your kids during the month and beyond, black documentaries you can watch, black Americans to learn more about, and so much more, it's a great time of year to focus on the contributions and accomplishments of black Americans. Additionally, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, ASALH, has actually made each February extra significant during Black History Month by choosing a different theme for every single year. So, starting with 1928, we have all the Black History Month themes to look back on. According to the ASALH, over the years the themes reflect changes in how people of African descent in the United States have viewed themselves, the influence of social movements on racial ideologies, and the aspirations of the black community. This year, February will be a celebration of Black History Month with the theme, African Americans and the Arts. The ASALH shares, African American art is infused with African Caribbean and the black American lived experiences. In the fields of visual and performing arts, literature, fashion, folklore, language, film, music, architecture, culinary, and other forms of cultural expression, the African American influence has been paramount. African American artists have used art to preserve history and community memory as well as for empowerment. Artistic and cultural movements such as the New Negro, Black Arts, Black Renaissance, Hip-Hop, and Afrofuturism have been led by people of African descent and set the standards for popular trends around the world. In 2024, we examined the varied history and life of African American arts and artisans. Expanding on the theme of African Americans in the arts, ASALH details the intricate timeline of black Americans and their contribution to music, art, dance, and so much more. They note periods of black creativity with the Harlem Renaissance and the black arts movement and name major African American artists such as Alvin Ailey, dancer, DJ Cool Herc and Cochla Rock, musicians, Octavia Butler, author, and so many more creatives. How can we focus on this theme in February 2024? ASALH shares that this theme puts into the national spotlight the richness of the past and present with an eye towards what the rest of the 21st century will bring. Following is a list of Black History Month themes through the years. 1928, Civilization, a World Achievement. 1929, Possibility of Putting Negro History in the Curriculum. 1930, Significant Achievements of the Negro. 1931, Neglected Aspects of Negro History. 1932, What George Washington Bicentennial Commission Failed to Do. 1933, Ethiopia Meets Era in Truth. 1934, Contribution of the Negro in Poetry, in Painting, in Sculpture, and in Science. 1935, The Negro Achievements in Africa. 
1936, African Background Outlined. 1937, American Negro History from the Time of Importation from Africa up to the Present Day. 1938, Special Achievements of the Race. Oratory, Drama, Music, Painting, Sculpture, Science, and Inventions. 1939, Special Achievements of the Race. Religion, Education, Business, Architecture, Engineering, Innovation, Pioneering. 1940, Negro Labor. 1941, The Career of Frederick Douglass. 1942, The Negro in Democracy. 1943, The Negro in the Modern World. 1944, The Negro and the New Order. 1945, The Negro and Reconversion. 1946, Let Us Have Peace. 1947, Democracy Possible Only Through Brotherhood. 1948, The Whole Truth and Nothing But the Truth. 1949, The Use of Spirituals in the Classroom. 1950, Outstanding Moments in Negro History. 1951, Eminent Negroes in World Affairs. 1952, Great Negro Educators. 1953, Negro History and Human Relations. 1954, Negro History, A Foundation for Integration. 1955, Negro History, A Contribution to America's Intercultural Life. 1956, Negro History in an Era of Changing Human Relations. 1957, Negro History. 1958, Negro History, A Factor in Nationalism and Internationalism. 1959, Negro History, A Foundation for a Proud America. 1960, Strengthening America Through Education in Negro History and African Culture. 1961, Freedom and Democracy for the Negro After 100 Years, 1861 to 1961. 1962, Negro History and a New Birth of Freedom. 1963, Negro History Evaluates Emancipation. 1863 to 1963. 1964, Negro History, A Basis for the New Freedom. 1965, Negro History, Freedom's Foundation. 1966, Freedom from Racial Myths and Stereotypes Through Negro History. 1967, Negro History in the Home, School, and the Community. 1968, The Centennial of the 14th Amendment, Afro-American History Week. 1969, Changing the Afro-American Image Through History. 1970, 15th Amendment and Black America in the Century, 1870 to 1970. 1971, African Civilization and Culture, A Worthy Historical Background. 1972, African Art, Music, Literature, A Valuable Cultural Experience. 1973, Biography Illuminates the Black Experience. 1974, Helping America Understand. 1975, Fulfilling America's Promise, Black History Month. 1976, America for All Americans. 1977, Heritage Days, The Black Perspective, The Third Century. 
1978. Roots, Achievements and Projections. 1979, History, Torch for the Future. 1980, Heritage for America. 1981, Black History, Role Model for Youth. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the African American Hour. I am reading from the ParadeMagazine.com website and its article titled Black History Month Through the Years, Every Black History Month Theme Since 1928. 1982, Afro-American Survival. 1983, Afro-Americans in the United States. 1984, Afro-Americans in Education. 1985, Afro-American Family. 1986, Afro-American Experience, International Connection. 1987, Afro-Americans in the Constitution from Colonial Times to the Present. 1988, Constitutional Status of Afro-Americans in the 21st Century. 1989, Afro-Americans in Religion. 1990, 75 Years of Scholarly Excellence, an homage to our forebearers. 1991, Educating America, Black Universities and Colleges, Strengths and Crisis. 1992, African Roots Experience New Worlds, Pre-Columbus to Space Exploration. 1993, Afro-American Scholars, Leaders, Activists, and Writers. 1994, Empowering Black Americans. 1995, Reflections on 1895, Douglas, Dubois, and Washington. 1996, Black Women. 1997, African Americans and Civil Rights, A Reprisal. 1998, Black Business. 1999, Legacy of African American Leadership for the Present and the Future. 2000, Heritage and Horizons, The African American Legacy and the Challenges for the 21st Century. 2001, Creating and Defining the African American Community, Family, Church, Politics, and Culture. 2002, The Color Line Revisited, Is Racism Dead? 2003, The Souls of Black Folks, Centennial Reflections. 2004. Before Brown, Beyond Boundaries. Commemorating the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. 2005. The Niagara Movement. Black Protest Reborn. 1905 to 2005. 2006. Celebrating Community. A Tribute to Black Fraternal, Social, and Civil Institutions. 2007, From Slavery to Freedom, Africans in the Americas. 2008, Carter G. Woodson and the Origins of Multiculturalism. 2009, The Quest for Black Citizenship in the Americas. 2010, The History of Black Economic Empowerment. 2011, African Americans and the Civil War. 2012, Black Women in American Culture and History. Also 2012, President Barack Obama National Black History Month Proclamation. 2013, At the Crossroads of Freedom and Equality, The Emancipation Proclamation and the March on Washington. 2014, Civil Rights in America. 
2015, A Century of Black Life, History, and Culture. 2016, Hallowed Grounds, Sites of African American Memories. 2017, The Crisis in Black Education. 2018, African Americans in Times of War. 2019, Black Migrations. 2020, African Americans and the Vote. 2021, The Black Family, Representation, Identity, and Diversity. 2022, Black Health and Wellness. 2023, Black Resistance. 2024, African Americans and the Arts. That was the article titled, Black History Month Through the Years, Every Black History Month Theme Since 1928. It was written by Kelsey Pelzer, published December 13, 2023, in Parade Magazine's Parade.com website. My next reading is from the New York Times obituary in its Overlooked No More section. Overlooked is a series of obituaries about remarkable people whose deaths, beginning in 1851, went unreported in the Times. The title of this obituary is Overlooked No More, Adafunmi I, who introduced African Americans to Yoruba. It was written by Diane Ford and published October 27, 2023. When he was growing up in Detroit, Walter King wondered why his family didn't celebrate cultural holidays the way his Jewish and Polish classmates did. So he went to his mother. Who is the African God? That's what I want to know, he asked her when he was 15. His mother didn't have the answer. Blacks really don't have any knowledge of their history and culture before slavery, she explained, as recounted in the book, Yoruba Traditions in African-American Religious Nationalism, by the scholar Tracy E. Hux. The exchange was pivotal. King began a quest to answer his own question. He read everything he could about Africa, taking an African name for himself that would evolve to Ofuntola Osejaman Adalabu Adafunmi I. Adafunmi is spelled A-D-E-F-U-N-M-I. It was while reading National Geographic magazine that he learned of Yoruba. The Yoruba people are one of the largest ethnic groups in Africa, with roots that can be traced to the ancient city of Ile-Ife in Nigeria. The slave trade spread their religion throughout the African diaspora, where it is recognized in a variety of names including Condoble in Brazil, Santeria in Cuba, and Voodoo in Haiti. But according to Making the Gods in New York, the Yoruba religion in the African-American community by Mary Cuthrell Curry, the religion ceased to exist in the United States if it had ever existed at all. That is until Adafumi I created a branch called Orisa Vudun and the one-of-a-kind village in South Carolina that embodies it, Oyatunji. His mission was to bring the African gods to African Americans, Hux the scholar said in an interview. She spoke with Adafumi extensively for her book and lived in Oyatunji, which she called a core space for African Americans and a mecca where one could go to get initiated. About 25 people live there today, but the population reached a few hundred at its height in the 1980s. Scholars estimate that thousands of people globally have been initiated into Yoruba priesthoods through connections to the village. 
Between 1956 and 1961 in New York, Adafumi established three temples in Manhattan, a festival on the Hudson River to honor Osun, the Yoruba River God that Beyonce channels in her album Black is King, and a parade that included black nationalists in African garb on horseback. The Ujamaa African market he founded in 1962 sold every kind of African wear like Ileke waist beads, geles or head wraps, drums, and daishikis, loose-fitting tops which he made himself. Dressed in a flowing robe, Adafumi would preach about the cosmos and African deities from a soapbox on 125th Street in Harlem. Visitors to the 1964 World's Fair may have seen him drumming in the African Pavilion. Anyone who tuned in to watch the 1977 television miniseries Roots saw Oyotunji residents dancing in a scene that Adafumi produced. In 1996, the Miami Herald called him the father of the Yoruban cultural restoration movement. He was ultimately crowned Oba, or King of the Yoruba in North America, by the Oni, the spiritual leader of the Yoruba people in Nigeria. Walter Eugene King was born on October 5, 1928 in Detroit to a Baptist family, one of five children. His mother, Wilhelmina Hamilton, worked for the Works Progress Administration, the New Deal Agency. His father, Roy King, owned and operated a furniture reupholstery and moving company. They were followers of the black nationalist leader Marcus Garvey and were committed to his Back to Africa movement. But Walter was more interested in learning about Africa's cultures and religions than immigrating there. By the time Walter graduated from Cass Technical High School, he had stopped going to church. At 20, he joined the Catherine Denham Dance Company in New York. Dunham's performances often included songs to the Orisa, Yoruba deities, and the company performed in places like Egypt and Haiti. The Yoruba Temple in Harlem, which Adafunmi established in 1960, attracted black activists like the poet and playwright Amiri Baraka and Queen Mother Moore. The three served together in the Republic of New Africa, a black nationalist organization formed on the idea that a self-governed black nation should be created out of five southern states. The group also sought reparations of $4 billion. He was a territorial nationalist, Huck said, and really wanted to know, how do we build a nation for ourselves in this country? The answer was Oyatunji Village, the South Carolina community that Adafunmi established in 1970 as a place of rehabilitation for African Americans in search of their spiritual and cultural identity, he told Essence magazine. The name refers to the African Yoruba kingdom of Oyo and means Oyo rises again. Adafumi chose a rural location in Sheldon, in the heart of the Gullah Geechee Corridor, where descendants of enslaved West Africans retained their indigenous traditions in the remote sea islands dotting the southeastern Atlantic coast. A sign posted in both Yoruba and English welcomes visitors to the village. You are leaving the United States. You are entering Yoruba kingdom. Welcome to our land. Walking through the village, replete with life-size carvings and shrines, you see the magnificence of the buildings, Kamari Clark, author of Mapping Yoruba Networks, Power and Agency in the Making of Transnational Communities, said in an interview. You would hear the roosters crowing in the morning, she added, and see people walking just in their lapas wrapped around them to go and get water, and only the Yoruba spoken. Clark lived in Oyatunji and traveled with his community members to Nigeria. 
Its evolution from a black-only space to a site of pilgrimage and learning open to all is one of the things that has sustained it, she said. When Adafumi's son, Oba Adajuyigbi Adafumi II, went to public school, before the village established its own, he was sometimes ridiculed for his African clothing and tribal markings. We lived in two different worlds, the younger Adafumi said. We would say, why can't we just be regular? Our parents would tell us we're not regular. It was ordained at birth that he would be the next king of their village, which Adafumi II said was a terrible thought my whole life. I wanted to be a rapper. He was appointed the new Oba of the village after his father died of heart disease on February 11, 2005. He was 76. Adafumi II estimated that Oyatunja receives about 20,000 visitors annually. He said Yoruba's growing popularity has changed his view of the village and its importance. Everybody's practicing Yoruba culture today, he said. I can hear the language that people laughed at us for talking back in Savannah when we were kids. I can hear it on Spotify. I hear it all over the radio. Through artists like India Ari, Future, and Beyonce. That makes us proud, he said. All of this is the residual effect of what our elders did and what my father did. That was the New York Times obituary titled, Overlooked No More, Adafumi I, who introduced African Americans to Yoruba. It was published October 27, 2023, and written by Diane Ford. This article is part of Overlooked, a series of obituaries about remarkable people whose deaths, beginning in 1851, went unreported by the New York Times. I'm going to wrap up today's program with a book review from Kirkus Reviews magazine and its January 2024 edition. The title of the book being reviewed is Smoke Kings, written by Jamal Mayfield. The book review is written by the Kirkus Reviews staff. Following the murder of his teenage cousin Darius, Young black political activist Nate Evers devises what his friend Isaiah calls a crazy-ass reparation scheme. Along with Darius's older brother Joshua and their friend Rachel, Nate and Isaiah track down descendants of men who committed hate crimes in the South decades ago, abduct them, and teach them a fatal lesson. One of their victims is a man inaptly named Chipper, whose forebearers lynched a formerly enslaved man who'd been wrongly imprisoned for raping a white woman. Following the disappearance of Chipper, who was known for having torn down a memorial to the hanged man, the Avengers are pursued by Chipper's brother, Samuel, a cross-burner with psychosis who leads the white supremacist Righteous Boys. Nate and his mates, who gradually begin to differ over their aims and methods, are also pursued by Mason Farmer a former white Birmingham cop with a racist streak. He went to work for a private investigative firm so he could afford the prescription drugs his wife needed after having been badly traumatized by a gang of homeboys who forced her off the road. There's nary a moment in Mayfield's bravura debut that isn't tense and unsettling or lets readers off the hook. Inspired by black activist Kimberly Jones's fiery video, How Can We Win?, this politically charged crime novel refuses to settle for easy answers or easy anger. We're doing Darius a disservice by making this just about terrible white people, Isaiah argues. One white character asks Nate, 
How can there ever be any meaningful change if it's your people and my people? He replies, race is a complex issue. That complexity has rarely been captured as powerfully or affectingly as it is here. That is the review of the book Smoke Kings written by Jamal Mayfield. It appeared in the January 2024 edition of Kirkus Reviews magazine. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Thank you.